0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and I'm happy to welcome Hannah Brenner-Johnson and Renee Kanaki-Jefferson to the program today. These two legal scholars have collaborated on the recent book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, which is published by NYU Press. Also, we had our conversation just a few days before Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87. Let's have you introduce yourselves so our listeners can know your voices.
1: Sure. So I am Hannah Brenner-Johnson, and I am the Vice Dean for Academic and Student Affairs and an Associate Professor of Law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. And I'm Renee Kanaki-Jefferson. I hold the Joanna and Larry
2: Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics, and I am a Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center.
0: Professor's I probably, like others, think of shortlisting as being an honor, like being a finalist for a prestigious award like the Booker Prize. But the word has another connotation, and it's not nearly as benign.
2: That's true. It can also mean forever remaining on that shortlist and never being selected from it. I mean, you're right. It's important to be shortlisted because, to be sure, you got to be shortlisted to be the one chosen. But one thing that we've observed in our research about women who were shortlisted for the US Supreme Court is that in many instances, presidents use those shortlists for political reasons. They never really intended to select the women from them. Instead, they wanted to have an appearance of caring about equality and diversity by placing women on the shortlist, but then they ultimately did not choose them, thus preserving the status quo of an all-male Supreme Court until 1981.
0: And we've heard a lot recently about President Trump's proposed shortlist if he gets to nominate another Supreme Court justice. His record on diversity hasn't been really great uh, appointing federal justices.
1: No, it has not. But it is interesting to note that President Trump is one of, well, he's the only president, actually, to put his shortlist on the White House website. So, he's been quite transparent uh, in sharing with the public the names of the individuals who he is contemplating to appoint to the court should he be given that opportunity. And I think that Renee and I both wish that other presidents had been so transparent because our project would have been made much easier. We had to dig through presidential archives and other collections to arrive at our list of women who were shortlisted but not selected to the court.
0: So why has it long been this kind of post-facto thing until Trump has published his pre-announcements?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's a very different kind of process. I mean, the shortlist is a term of art that as lawyers we are very well familiar with. Um, When you say the word shortlist to an attorney, I think we all think about the Supreme Court, because in fact, that is a well understood part of that process. But it just doesn't have the same, you know, with an election for president or an election for other political office, you could go back very easily in time and look at who the candidates were, perhaps because they have to really self-nominate, and then the political party has to select them. But the shortlisting and selection for Supreme Court justices has just historically taken place behind closed doors. It is very political, even though it often masquerades as not being so. I don't know, Renee, do you have other suspicions about why why such secrecy? Well, it's
2: interesting because presidents have been secret in their shortlisting process, but they've also been strategic in making them public. So, I mean, Trump takes it to a whole new level, right? Because I actually call it his not-so-short shortlist. I mean, I think he's added an additional 20 names to some 40-some, and there's maybe like 65-ish. I There are a lot lot of names on his shortlist, far more than in our research, for example, one of the long shortlists that was publicly put out there was by President Nixon, He released a list with six names on it on his official shortlist back in the early 1970s. He also did so for political reasons. His was really to get the women's vote, even though he said in his Oval Office, we've listened to the tapes, that he didn't think women should be allowed to vote. He wanted their vote. He put two women on a shortlist that was released in the early 1970s. He ultimately selected from that list Justice Rehnquist, who would go on to become Chief Justice, and Justice Powell, the two women. Mildred Lilly and Sylvia Bacon would remain forever on that shortlist. But I also just want to react to one other thing that Hannah just said. It's true when you say shortlist, we lawyers think shortlist the Supreme Court. But shortlisting is a phenomenon that can happen to anyone in professional life. I mean, anytime you are talking about interviewing a candidate, for a new position, anytime you're thinking about selecting a leader, there's going to be a shortlist created. And what we have seen, and we think that this is a phenomenon that will be familiar to women and minority women, especially across all professions, is the reality that interprofessional life in numbers equal to men. But when these shortlists are created, they may even show up in numbers equal to men but they are not selected in numbers equal to men. So part of what our book is trying to do is tell this important untold history of the United States Supreme Court and indeed our American history, but it's also trying to better understand this phenomenon of what it means to be shortlisted and critically how we can help more women more minority women in particular, go from being shortlisted to selected for positions of leadership and power, whether we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court or in any place of professional life?
1: Yeah, I think Renee is exactly right. It just provides a vehicle through which we can talk about a phenomenon that many of us know to be true, whether we are in a field like law or in any other profession. So it allows us when we have this public glimpse into what's happening on the Supreme Court, the opportunity to look at not just what's happening on the ground for lawyers, but for women and minorities across the professional spectrum.
0: So when someone actually breaks through the shortlist and actually becomes appointed to a level in the the federal judiciary, including Supreme Court, then there's the possibility of tokenism creeping in. Could you talk about some of the traps of tokenism that particularly women and women of color have to face when they join the judiciary?
1: Well, I think one of the dangers is related to this notion of essentialism. In other words, when you have a woman or a minority on a court or in a position or leadership or power, people make the assumption that she represents all women or all black women. That's problematic for so many reasons. I mean, the fact that we've only had four women serve on the U.S. Supreme Court over the course of our nation's history really means that we have had a very, very narrow representation of women's experience generally. But there's an individual burden that tokenism creates for individual women as well. When you are the only one, you are expected to speak on behalf of everybody in your group, when in fact that's a near impossibility. It also places burdens on individual women because they are often called upon to be the woman's voice or the minority voice. And that can be an incredibly time-consuming endeavor. Tokenism is a very, very complex phenomenon and one that every woman in our study experienced because each one of them was really the first in so many different aspects of their professional lives. And it doesn't just impact
2: the individual who has to shoulder these burdens. Justice O'Connor put it really, really well when she went to the Supreme Court. She knew she was the first, she didn't want to be the last. So this, you know, all of these self-imposed burdens to be flawless in the role, and then also organizational burdens in that, oh, we as an organization want to show we care about diversity. So let's ask the woman or the minority to be on this committee and that committee and, and help us recruit and that sort of thing. But there's, there's an additional burden that's placed on anyone who comes next. And that was something we actually explored in a study that was the the origin for this project and that we saw as additional women were put on the Supreme Court, most notably Obama's nominees, so now Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, because they were not exactly like the two other women who had previously served on the court, they were subjected to all sorts of criticism about the fact that they were not married, that they didn't have children, you know, who who would accompany them, who would be their date to fancy Supreme Court events, that sort of thing. This level of scrutiny that, that men don't ever have to endure because men from all sorts of backgrounds have held professional roles for hundreds of years. And so the burden isn't just on the person who is in the token role, but then it is placed on those who come uh, to join her in the future to the extent they deviate in any way from the first woman to hold that role, because everyone just assumes that's how all women must be or all minorities must be.
1: I was going to say, Renee Renee mentioned the origins of this project, and I think it's worth talking about specifically in relation to this issue of tokenism. So a number of years ago, we embarked on a media study related to, but separate from shortlisted. We explored empirically the way that women and men who were nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court were portrayed through a gendered lens. And that empirical study required that we read through about 4,000 newspaper articles that were published in the Washington Post and the New York Times dating back to the early 70s, it was embedded in that stack of articles that we found a real gem of a story that ultimately led us to begin this project, which ended in the publication of the book shortlisted. And the article that we stumbled upon was about a judge. Her name was Mildred Lilly. She was a judge from California, and she was also somebody who appeared on President Nixon's shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, Renee and I were surprised to read this article because we had never heard of Lily. Nobody had taught us about her in our law school classes or our history classes. But we were also a bit stunned when we read the article because the reporter from the New York Times commented on what Judge Lily looked like in a bathing suit. She maintained her bathing beauty figure even into her fifties, the author remarked. And I do think that this reflects the phenomenon that Renee was just speaking about, that when you have somebody who has never been represented, and in this case on the nation's highest court, as the first one, she does become subject to all sorts of inappropriate scrutiny, In some cases, on things that don't even matter. You know, Judge Lilly was an incredibly qualified candidate for the court, and yet her appearance in a swimsuit and her childless status um, were the focus of scrutiny. And so I think that's a perfect example And also one that, uh, as Renee mentioned, extended well into this century with the nominations of Justices Kagan and Sotomayor who were critiqued similarly, even though it was decades later. And ostensibly we have moved past the point of, you know, explicit bias and discrimination. And in fact, that study revealed that that really is not true. But just another example of how that phenomenon of tokenism plays out.
0: The only male justice I can remember Having his marital status discussed was David Souter. There was some minor speculation about his sexuality since he was an unmarried man of 50 when he was nominated back about 30 years ago or so.
2: Yes, that's right. He did have a a bit of commentary about it. Although, at least from our media study, what we observed is that it was not nearly as critical or suggesting that that somehow made him unqualified for the court. And the commentary about Kagan and Sotomayor really did suggest, in fact, one of the headlines read, the Supreme Court needs more mothers, you know, as as if their childless (laughs) status meant that somehow they were not competent to be Supreme Court justices.
0: And that wasn't even from a conservative outlet. Right.
2: right. No. (laughs) No.
0: So you write about women facing double binds, in which it's kind of a can't win scenario, damned if you do, damned if you don't. What are some of these types of double binds that women face in respect to the judiciary?
1: Well, there's so many examples. I think motherhood. So Renee just mentioned an article that appeared uh, not that many years ago demanding that the Supreme Court should have more mothers and yet when a mother finds herself on a short list, she's scrutinized for not being committed to her professional life or how could you do both? And so it, I think that motherhood is probably a one of the quintessential double binds where you're suspicious if you don't have children and you're not married, but you certainly can't be committed if you are. Interestingly, several of the women in our study are just really interesting to talk about as it relates to this double bind. So I think back to Susie Sharp, who was one of the women we feature, was a judge from North Carolina, And Judge Sharp felt that women could occupy either the home or the professional world. She didn't believe that a woman could do both. So in many ways, she sort of imposed a choice for herself based on that reality. She never married. She did not have children. She was a very devoted judge and lawyer throughout her entire career. And so I think that her experience perhaps is one that is relatable to a lot of women who feel that no matter which choice they might have made, they just can't win.
0: It seemed that she also had some reservations when she was announced on a shortlist that she didn't know if she wanted to be the first.
1: Absolutely. We talk a lot in the book about this phenomenon of self-shortlisting. So we're, of course, very critical of women being placed onto shortlists and not selected from that place into ultimately the position of leadership and power that they seek. But many women, in fact, shortlist themselves. I think the two of us are, are no exception, nor are many of the women who we know in our professional circles where we feel that we need to be that much more qualified to even be eligible for, you know, whatever the, position is that we might be seeking. So it's a problem that we impose on ourselves. It's a problem that women impose on other women. And of course, it's one that is quite systemic in nature as well. I guess
2: another double bind relates to, it's not just motherhood. So it's the tension between appearing stereotypically feminine versus being a devoted professional. And so again, another example from the book, Presidents were considering women for the shortlist as early as the 1930s. But we come to the end of that history that we tell, and it's 1981. And it's down to the wire. Reagan's shortlist has a handful of women on it. And of course, he's promised as a campaign pledge, he's going to select a woman. So he has a shortlist with five women on it. That's one way to make sure that a woman comes off the shortlist, by the way, to have an all-female shortlist. And so it seems that Presidential candidate Joe Biden is taking a page out of that playbook as well, promising that we will have an African-American female Supreme Court justice if he has the opportunity to fill a vacancy. But back to Reagan, it comes down from that shortlist to two. One, obviously, is Sandra Day O'Connor because she was selected. But the other is someone uh, who your listeners might not know. Cornelia Kennedy, a judge from Michigan. And both of them, when they were going through the final interviewing stages, the final vetting process with advisors from the president, both had to sort of assess and decide how they were going to come across in that interview and how they were going to handle themselves. And Sandra Day O'Connor was interviewed in her home. She prepared a salmon moose for the presidential advisors who came to visit her. This was just days after she had a hysterectomy, by the way, and was very much trying, I think, to be all things, both the epitome of the domestic ideal of a woman preparing a meal for the, the two advisors who were both men, by the way, coming to interview her, but then also, of course, speaking very competently in the interview and coming across and, in fact, being extremely well-qualified to be a member of the Supreme Court. Cornelia Kennedy also weighed what to do. She went to Washington, D.C., and she and her husband had a conversation about whether or not he should accompany her, and he ultimately stayed behind, but they were worried about how she would appear. Would she seem too reliant on her husband? Could she be sufficiently independent to make decisions on her own? And This type of double bind is just a calculation that you don't see male nominees for the Supreme Court or I think men in in most positions having to make when they're vying for professional roles.
0: Now, just 10 years before, Chief Justice Warren Burger said no to the possibility of a woman being on the court. 10 years later, did William Rehnquist's personal relationship with Sandra Day O'Connor smooth the way to convince Burger that a woman should be allowed to serve?
1: I'm sure that
2: has something to do with it, right? They were colleagues, classmates in law school, dated. And in fact, Rehnquist proposed marriage to O'Connor at one point in time. So imagine how different that story would have been had she accepted that proposal. I think also Berber had the opportunity to meet Sandra Day O'Connor. And so that was also part of it. So I think there were a variety of influences at play that made him more agreeable to the notion of having a woman join the court.
0: And President Truman also dealt with a chief justice who did not fancy the idea of a woman being on the court. Why do you think these presidents deferred to the justices instead of kind of forcing their hand?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the judiciary, it is one of our three branches of government, but it really is, it's sort of an entity into itself. And so I think that what the chief justices that you referenced were you know, resisting was also not something that probably the presidents themselves felt much differently about, right? So, you know, when you think about the times in which we're talking, so the 1930s or, you know, even in the decades leading up to President Reagan finally making good on his campaign, promised to put a woman on the Supreme Court. Women didn't occupy positions of leadership and power. There just wasn't precedent for that. And I think a lot of the presidents, even the ones that paid lip service, perhaps, to diversifying the court or considering a woman for a position on the nation's highest judicial body, I'm not so sure that they themselves actually wanted to see that through. I think if they did, that they probably would have forced the issue. But I think the Old Boys Club really was strong and kind of kept the status quo until it just no longer could.
0: And it wasn't only the judiciary that kind of forced the status quo, the American Bar Association and their recommendations also had the Old Boys Network in mind.
1: Absolutely. So the ABA has a standing committee on the judiciary, which presidents have historically over time relied on to provide rating of their judicial nominees or potential judicial nominees. And the ABA's commission did no favors to Judge Lilly as but one example and rated her unqualified to sit on the nation's highest court. Interestingly, Renée, I think it was John Dean, right, who later yeah, and this is White House counsel. Right. Later went through and took a look at the credentials of Lily as compared to Justice O'Connor and just really poked holes in the notion that Lily was was not qualified and called it for what it was, which was blatant sexism.
0: Do you think it took a conservative president Kind of like the Nixon goes to China paradigm that it took a conservative president in order to successfully appoint a woman to the Supreme Court.
2: No way. Carter would have been the first to do it, but he didn't have a vacancy. You know, So some of this is also just, you know, fortuitous. And I, I don't think I'm overstating to say that President Carter would have been the first to put a woman on the Supreme Court, but he never he never had a chance. And the reason why I feel pretty confident in saying this, first of all, it was widely reported. He would have put Huff Studler would have been his you know, top choice. She was his secretary of the Department of Education. But even more revealing, I think, is what President Carter did and for the federal judiciary in general. So even though he only served one term, he single-handedly did more than any other president, with the exception being the current president, to completely change the face of the judiciary. And Carter put more women and more minorities and more minority women onto the U.S. Supreme Court than all presidents collectively before him. The way he did it is pretty interesting, and it actually led to the appointment of one of the women in our shortlisted book to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the way Carter did this is he implemented a structural change. And it's one that I I think we can draw some lessons for ways that even now, those who are in roles of selecting who is chosen from a shortlist can implement these ideas. So Carter, through executive order, created Judicial commissions, 12 of them around the country, and they were in and of themselves made up of a diverse pool of commissioners, so women and minorities on each commission. They were tasked with finding and vetting candidates for the lower federal courts, the district courts and courts of appeals who were diverse, and importantly, they value diversity as a qualification. So not just that you were diverse, but also asking the candidates to talk about their commitment to diversity and what they had done professionally to advance goals of diversity, equality, and inclusion. On one of those commissions was a woman named Amalia Kearse. She then later became selected by one of those commissions to become Judge Amalia Kearse on the Second Circuit. That was after an incredibly successful career as a, a law firm partner in New York. And she is the only minority woman to appear in our study, I think, but for Carter's structural reform in how judges were selected for the federal judiciary, we would not have seen an African-American woman in this cohort. And so I don't think it just had to do with a conservative president deciding to Bring forward Sandra Day O'Connor, I think Carter would have been the first. And maybe part of why Reagan was the first is he knew he had to do something about the fact that as governor, his record on putting women in any positions of leadership and power, and especially the judiciary, was horrible. And he was able to help clean up his own record on that and compete against Carter's phenomenal record on that by promising to put a woman on the highest court.
1: And he certainly gets credit for doing that, but I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk about President Carter because he really did change the course of things. And Reagan, of course, deservedly, again, gets the credit for putting O'Connor on the court, but his record following that appointment was pretty much as dismal as it was when he was the governor. We stumbled upon a memo in our research of the internal the internal staff of President Reagan's office pointing out to him that if he didn't do more in terms of diversifying the bench, that there was going to really be trouble from the women's organizations. And he didn't heed that caution whatsoever and, you know, really was, I don't know if it's disparaging to call him a one-trick pony, but O'Connor was kind of where it it started uh, and ended.
2: And he had other vacancies on the Supreme Court. So it wasn't like he didn't have the opportunity to put more than one woman on the court. But he checked the woman box, and that was about as far as he would go.
0: He viewed her as the token.
2: Yes, Yes. (laughs) clearly.
0: So when President Obama had his third choice available to him, and he selected a moderate white man for that third position in Merrick Garland, what was the reaction like in legal circles who care about diversity on the
1: bench? Well, I mean, I think it it's certainly is hard to be critical of President Obama's judicial selection with Justices Kagan and Sotomayor as his first two nominees. And and so I think that there is often this sentiment expressed that well, we we already put a woman in a position. And so, you know, we've we've checked the box. He certainly rejected that phenomenon by appointing Two women in a row and one woman of color. I don't think either one of us would have been disappointed if it's if his third vacancy, if he would have put forth the name of a woman. But I think it's hard to be too critical. Progress is slow. I mean, we've only had four women serve on the court since its inception. Yes,
0: yeah, so only three and a half percent of women so far that's right. are represented on the court. So let's go back to the first woman that we believe to have been on a short list, and that's Judge Florence Allen. And she was an amazing person.
1: Absolutely. But when you think about all that she accomplished in the early part of last century, um, and ultimately into the 1930s, when she was considered not by one or two, but by three different presidents to serve on the nation's highest court. I mean, that speaks volumes, I think, about her accomplishments. So she was considered by Presidents Hoover, Roosevelt, and Truman, at a time, again, where women really were not represented in positions like Supreme Court justice. And she got close, but ultimately, as we know how history unfolded, never made it off of the short
0: list. In that same time period, I think it was an article in the Christian Science Monitor that y'all write that Mabel Walker Willebrand's name was also listed as a possibility. And I did an interview for a book last year called The Ghost of Eden Park about the George Remus bootlegger during Prohibition and Walker Willebrandt's position in the Justice Department at that time and how she pursued him. And she was also passed over to be attorney general when she thought she believed to be the best candidate for that position as well.
1: It's so interesting to hear these women's names and to learn of their credentials and their stories because there is a, I think it's a myth that is perpetrated that there just haven't been women, right, who could be elevated onto the courts into positions um, at law firms or in government and while they may not have existed quite in the same volume as as they do today certainly there were not a shortage of qualified women who were doing incredible work i mean Florence Allen made it onto the 6th circuit court of appeals you know a very prestigious federal court appointment just blazed trails that it was you know unheard of for almost anybody to do much less a woman
2: you know one of the things about writing this book We were so excited to tell this untold story of nine women. It's nine women, by the way, who were officially shortlisted by presidents leading up to O'Connor. But there were so many women whose names were put forward. You know, I spent a lot of time in presidential archives and I have read hundreds, maybe even thousands, of letters that were written by constituents to the various presidents putting forward lots of women's names and sending their resumes and that's just for the supreme court and i think there's so much more work to be done in recounting the history of all of these women who were eminently qualified and overlooked at the time in part because even with our nine. While these women weren't selected for the ultimate position of the U.S. Supreme Court, just like Florence Allen, each one had extraordinary professional accomplishments. And oh, by the way, also really interesting and in some cases very juicy personal lives. (laughs) They had incredible things they were doing, just, you know, literally foraging these paths where no woman had gone before. I mean, so much so that the buildings they were going to work in didn't have bathrooms for women in them. And I think those stories, well, they deserve to be told in their own right, because it's an important part of our American history. But they also deserve to be told because they're incredibly inspiring. And while it's true, I think in hopefully all professional workplaces now, women will be able to find appropriate bathroom facilities, there are still structural impediments to women being a part of professional life. And the same strategies, tactics... The same ways these women chartered their course, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, women today can use those same techniques. And so that's that's a big part of how we conclude the book, is, is trying to offer some inspiration and, and a bit of a how-to guide. I mean, we're not here to say if you do everything these women did, you too will end up on the Supreme Court shortlist and maybe be selected. But I think we can say definitively that If one looks at how these women pursued their professional life, that there are excellent guideposts and again points of inspiration for each of us as we're trying to do it. And and importantly, for you know, this is not just a book for women, for men as well who are trying to support the women who are pursuing these professional goals, and also importantly in the roles of selecting the women for them and how they can help champion them.
1: I think one of the important takeaways from this book, and we're happy to go back to talking more about the strategies um, at, at a later point, but you know, the rhetoric and the discourse around the US Supreme Court when it comes to gender really starts with Sandra Day O'Connor's appointment in 1981. And I think for both of us, before we embarked on this research project, that's where that history began for us as well. We assumed that that was a watershed moment. The first woman finally made it onto the Supreme Court. And then from there, the story unfolds. But when we uncovered that article about Judge Lilly that was written in the early 70s about her appearing on Nixon's shortlist to the Supreme Court, it really did inspire us to ask this question You know, who else? We had never heard of Lily. We always assumed Justice O'Connor was the first, but who else might have been shortlisted for the Supreme Court? And so we really felt compelled to tell this story as a collective storytelling. I mean, each of these individual women are extraordinary in their own right, but it really does fill in a very significant gap in our historical kind of telling about the Supreme Court. By elevating these women's stories and talking about their professional lives and their personal ones, as we did a bit in the book, to fill in that historical gap.
0: A very interesting woman on the short list was Soya Menshikov, who was every bit the equal, if not the superior to her power couple husband.
2: Yes. And most people don't know her name. Certainly, lawyers, law students know the name Carl Llewellyn, who's a famous scholar of legal jurisprudence. So what's interesting to me about them, there's a few things. So. I was saying earlier, these stories are also inspiring. Hers was incredibly so for me because I had not knowing passed by her portrait hanging on the hallway wall of the University of Chicago Law School. I mean, every day I saw her for, for three years and I didn't really feel like I had much in common with her at the time. She was the only woman, by the way, in this larger than life portrait hanging up with a series of lots of men with white hair in the hallways at the University of Chicago. She was the first female law professor there. And she joined the faculty with her husband, Carl Llewellyn. They were hired together as a couple from Harvard Law School. She was the first female law professor at Harvard. And interestingly, in that hiring, because of the anti-nepotism rules at the time, she was not hired on the tenure stream. Only Carl got tenure. Her salary was slightly less. Even though we've read interviews with the the dean at the time, that really, she was the, the candidate that was most wanted. I mean, they wanted them both, but they really felt she was the faculty member they wanted to hire. After he passed away, then she was given tenure. Before she ended up as a professor, she was a partner in New York, a New York law firm. One of the articles we uncovered about her described not her qualifications as a lawyer, but focused completely on all of the things a lady lawyer does, the lingerie she would buy, how much she would spend on alcohol and cigarettes. It featured a full-length picture of her, like a full-page spread in a ball gown. So that certainly fed into our media study, although she wasn't part of that. It was certainly seeing those same themes.
0: Don't forget the hats.
2: And the hats, (laughs) hats. her her crazy hats that people would make fun of, but then she said gave her the upper hand when she was negotiating against lawyers. It was so, so inspiring to me because after seeing her in that very sterile setting of the law school hallway, Once I started researching her, I've held the index cards that she used to prepare for lectures, I got to know her in a very personal way, and she's really become a mentor to me, even though I never had the privilege of knowing her in person, which is just another reminder of why it's so important to tell these stories. In fact, in some ways, by going through her files, I was able to learn more about her than I'm sure she would have ever disclosed in a more formal setting had I been her student or even if I... met her later on in life. A couple of other things I'll just mention about her. First, she was the first female reporter for the American Law Institute and single-handedly really spearheaded the Uniform Commercial Code, which we all now continue to rely upon today. I mean, every contract that's negotiated is, is drawn from it. So she really had an incredible role in American law. And the last thing I'll note about her, at least for now, is some of the women in in this study were very strong feminists. Like Florence Allen, she campaigned for suffrage, women's rights to vote. We've talked about her earlier. We also mentioned Susie Sharp earlier. She actually campaigned against the Equal Rights Amendment. I would say that Menchikoff probably fell somewhere between that on a continuum. But one thing she did do, among her other firsts, she was the first female president of the Association of American Law Schools, which is an organization that all... Law schools belong to. They have an annual conference where faculty travel that results in lots of mentoring and networking opportunities. In fact, Hannah and I won a writing award there very early on in our careers that absolutely helped us. And what she noticed when she became president of the organization is at the time that women weren't really attending this annual meeting. And she figured out why, and it's because of the timing. It was held right after Christmas up to the new year. Most women were in caregiving roles and caring for children. And you can't just up and leave the day after Christmas, even though, you know, some might want to do so. She changed the timing of the meeting so that it occurred after the holidays. And suddenly more women were able to participate. We certainly benefited from that. And so when we think about structural changes to bring more equality and diversity. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as Jimmy Carter's executive order that transformed the federal judiciary that we were talking about earlier. It can be something as simple and and easy as changing the time of a meeting so that everyone, including the caregivers, can participate.
1: Well, and I think that's a, a really perfect example of a meaningful kind of change that we can create that will actually have a real impact. As contrasted with something like, you know, the American Bar Association now has a commission on women in the profession, which is fantastic, right? But- Sylvia Bacon, who's another woman in our study, was cautious about the creation of that commission. Not because it wasn't a positive thing I'm in her mind, but she cautioned that we shouldn't get too excited about that because these kinds of initiatives can really just function more like window dressing and not actually create the real kind of systemic change that we need. For somebody like Bacon, she said that we actually need women in leadership positions at the American Bar Association, not just a special commission about women. And so for her, that would be the real kind of change is that when women could start stepping into positions of leadership and power at an organization like the ABA. We, of course, didn't see the first woman to lead that organization until 1995. It was Roberta Cooper-Remo. And the first woman of color, Paulette Brown, didn't step into that position as president of the ABA until 2015. So again, we had the creation of a commission, but it took a number of, of years later for the actual change to occur where women and minority women are leading that organization.
0: Now, when it comes to actually making rulings, the practical aspect of all this, are there any tendencies that aren't shared by female and male justices?
2: So there have been studies that address the difference that being a woman or a man makes in terms of the outcome. And they show that generally there's not a difference, but there are some exceptions to that. And they have to do with cases involving sexual harassment, domestic violence, Cases involving child custody, child support. And in those situations, women do decide the cases differently than men. And I think understandably so. Studies have also shown that men who have daughters may decide cases differently than men who do not. So I what I would say to this though is I think you're really getting at a larger question or issue. And it's one that Hannah and I get a lot when we talk about this book, which is what are we really asking for? Would it be better to have Men on the court who support feminist values than a woman on the court who doesn't support feminist values, for example. And I think that we would both say, well, yes, because we care about feminist values. But even more importantly, we care about a court that represents perspectives and values and different life experiences for men and women. Men have had every political, social, moral, religious perspective under the sun represented for themselves on the Supreme Court and in professional life for centuries. And women have not. And I think it's important to think about having a court of of nine women who didn't all see eye to eye on every single issue and would decide cases differently. And if we had more women in positions of leadership and power, we would see more opportunities for that broad cross section and representation of a range of viewpoints. I mean, in fact, we had no idea what we would find when we went to answer that question how many women were shortlisted before Sandra Day O'Connor. It turns out there were nine, which was kind of a fun result since there are nine seats on the Supreme Court. That was a bit of a coincidence. But even in just our cohort of nine, these women, in fact, when you get nine, so a little, you know, a little bit more than a critical mass, they really did represent a huge range of perspectives on issues with, you know, regarding feminism. I've already touched on that in that some were outward feminists and campaigned directly for women's rights. Some campaigned, you might say, against them, right? At least Susie Sharp in not supporting the Equal Rights Amendment. Some were either suspected to be racist or outward racist. Susie Sharp was an outward racist, supported, for example, at the time the North Carolina Constitution, had a prohibition on interracial marriage. She supported that. Although I will say, and this is, I think, what's equally important as a judge, she was able to set aside her personal views and actually apply the law. She was indeed the judge who ordered the desegregation of private golf courses, country clubs in North Carolina. So even though I disagree with her personal position completely on how she felt about race, I appreciate and respect her ability to set aside her personal views and and apply the law. So it is true that there are are some studies that show that women decide cases differently. But I think equally important is the opportunity for women to also represent all perspectives in professional life. And we need more women in those roles in order for that to happen.
0: With our country becoming more diverse in terms of race, religion, sexual orientation, gender orientation, do you think we should expand the Supreme Court beyond its nine seats? Because we would like to have a lot of voices heard on these matters, and it seems like nine is such a limited number when it comes to the growing diversity that we have in the country or that we've had for some time that has been
1: ignored. So that's really interesting. I mean, of course, it takes us back in history to a time when FDR um, was attempting to expand the court. And maybe if he had been successful in doing so, it would have provided space for women to serve. But That's
2: how Florence Allen shows up on a shortlist, by the way. We have the actual memo FDR stated 1937, he's trying to, you know, increase, not for diversity reasons, but that's okay, <laughs> the court. And there's this memo with, you know, pages of names and men, and there's one woman's name, and it's it's Florence Allen.
0: This is the court packing incident. Exactly. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. So I don't know. I mean, I think that nine seats on the court still provides some opportunity to include a diversity of perspective. It does. One thing that
2: has struck me is that so much of this has to do with the executive's commitment to a diversity of perspectives, and in their process of selecting who comes off their shortlist? You know, we observed two points. First of all, in the women who appear in our study, like. Judge Kearse, for example, she was considered by presidents from both parties. In fact, even Justice Sotomayor sitting on the court now. She initially went to the federal judiciary as a Bush appointee and then Obama elevated her. And so there was not that long ago, a period of time where our justices sort of rose above the politics and were selected for things beyond just their commitment to a political party. The kinds of things that were looked to In terms of diversity with geography and religion and how frequently a Republican versus a Democrat president had had the opportunity to fill a seat. I think, sadly for the nation, those kinds of factors are no longer part of the calculation when we're looking at who is being nominated for the court.
0: It was funny, but also instructive when Justice Bader Ginsburg said that she would be content when nine women were on the court
2: when i first heard that quote from her i thought oh we don't need nine but after writing this book i'm like yeah we, we do we need nine for like you know the next few decades to make up for a
0: couple um, hundred years yeah
2: i think her point is well taken in that we just you know we don't think anything of the fact that nine men were on the court for years and years and years and i think for most people even us you have sort of a strange visceral reaction well should we have nine women Well, no one questions, should we have nine men? So why do we think it's at all strange, the idea of nine women sitting on the court? So I appreciate that she makes all of us think more deeply about that in in her
1: observation. And it's absolutely true that if you just take our nine shortlisted women and put them on a hypothetical Supreme Court... I mean, that does not suggest universal agreement, as Renee talked about earlier, in terms of their viewpoints or their perspectives or their backgrounds. It would be, with the exception of racial diversity, it would be a very, very diverse group of women.
0: And with women making up more than 50% of graduates from law school in the past few years, at least a five to four majority of women on the court makes eminent sense when it comes just to pure numbers.
1: Well, we certainly think so. (laughs) Although, you know, the lack of diversity on the Supreme Court Is not anomalous, right? So if you look at positions of leadership and power across the legal profession, so whether we're talking about managing partners of law firms, general counsels in the Fortune 500, judges on other courts, women in other leadership roles in law, the pattern or the trend that we've seen on the Supreme Court is reflected across all of those sectors of the legal profession. So it is a little bit stunning to think that women and men have been graduating from law school in relatively equal numbers, not just for a few years, but actually for a few decades. And yet we still have not seen women ascend into the leadership roles in the numbers that we think they ought to.
2: And this is why the structural reforms that we talk about in the book, and we've talked about a little bit today with you, are so critical. Because- I mean, long over are the days where it's enough to say, oh, you know, women are now entering into professional education. Just give them time and they'll move through the ranks in equal numbers. We now know that waiting a little bit longer is not the solution. And so we have to look at the structural impediments that actually hold women back or divert them entirely from pursuing these positions.
0: So in looking to the future of the court, do you each personally have people that you would like to see be the next nominee when that position becomes available?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I, I don't have my own personal shortlist, at least so far, neither of the presidents have consulted me. Although I will tell you that at the last vacancy, when President Trump ended up selecting uh, not Kavanaugh, I guess, but uh, I guess it was when he was considering Kavanaugh. So after Gorsuch, he's considering Kavanaugh. Hannah and I penned an op-ed to the Houston Chronicle, and we urged President Trump to select a woman from his shortlist. He had women on the shortlist, and he could have easily done so. He did not heed our advice, even though we did tweet <laughs> it to him. So, you know, I think whichever president has the opportunity to put someone new on the court, I I, I sure hope it's a woman. It's, it's, it's time. I think it's really important to see a minority woman. I'm not one to say, oh, we should have a quota or we should fill a slot. But I also think um, continuing to put white men on the Supreme Court going forward is kind of becoming, it you know, kind of becomes like, like a, not a quota, but but a sort of similarly kind of, same kind of dynamic. And it's, there are so many extremely well-qualified minority women that whichever party the whatever president is going forward has an an abundance of of choices and i i hope he picks one of them or she picks one of them you know if we're talking about way in the future we may have a female (laughs) president selecting (laughs) supreme court justices one can dream right
0: and you hannah
1: yeah i i think i also don't know that anybody specific comes to mind i mean you know i'm often asked the question about the book like you know who who among our our nine women that we write about is my favorite and that's that's a really challenging one there aren't very many because they're all so extraordinary and they all feel a bit like kindred spirits in different ways there really aren't that many of the women that we write about who are still living you know, Judge Kirs is somebody who comes to mind. She's not somebody who's really a household name, um, but perhaps should be. So I think there's, you know, we're we're living in a time when there are so many extraordinarily qualified women, and especially women of color, who should be absolutely populating the short list and then ultimately selected but I'm going to stop short of, of naming anyone in particular.
2: I don't know. I mean, we could go out on a lark and say
1: Michelle Obama,
2: right? I
1: mean, why not? <laughs> that would be exciting. And I bet a
2: lot more of the public would pay attention to what's happening on the U.S. Supreme Court. So that could be another reason for a president to select her. I, I do think this is true, that the public sees so little of what the U.S. Supreme Court does and the few opportunities to understand it happen When the president selects the nominee and the media attention, there's, you know, at least a front page article or my goodness, if not like days and days of primetime hearings. I I can't remember the numbers now, but millions of people tuned in to watch the the Kavanaugh hearings. And it really breaks my heart, as it should uh, all lawyers, that that's the glimpse that the public gets of the legal profession and the judiciary and operation, because there's so much more. And so I guess Another hope I have is that the president's process and whoever is selected helps the public better understand the importance of that decision for the short-term and long-term of the country.
0: It's almost an American version of a papal conclave.
2: Yes, that's
1: true.
0: (laughs) And speaking of which, there are now five justices who are Roman Catholic on the board, and you write traditionally there was one seat set aside for a Roman Catholic justice. So it shows the ability of the American government to go past these traditions and and do
1: something different. Absolutely. Um, There is precedent. I'll build on something that Renee was just talking about a few moments ago about how the attention to the Supreme Court is really is really limited to the point at which a president selects somebody as a nominee. And in fact, you know, while that is while that is too bad because there's so much about the inner workings of the court and the decision making and then the decisions ultimately that come forward, that phenomenon afforded us the opportunity to embark on our media study over a decade ago, which ultimately led us to finding the article that led to the research and and writing of this book. And so we really did learn a lot about the Supreme Court and the way that lawyers are treated through this gendered lens that allowed us to kind of extrapolate to how things are faring on the ground for women and minority lawyers, because You know, the Supreme Court may not get a lot of attention and play in the mainstream media, but lawyers in their day to day work are getting even less. And so we really are grateful for the limited attention that is paid to the Supreme and has been paid to the Supreme Court because it allowed, allowed us to study a lot of the very phenomenon that have kept women and minorities from ascending into positions of leadership and power. You know, no longer are we living in a time where we are subjected to explicit discrimination. It's much more subtle and much more implicit. And it was really through all of this coverage that we were, lot, we were enabled um, and empowered to be able to identify how a lot of these, these different forms of, of discrimination, in fact, play out.
2: And I'll also build on your observation that, you know, we used to have just one seat, the token Catholic seat, and now we have many justices who share a similar religious background. It's also true that our, our justices' backgrounds are, are becoming even more and more common in terms of where they went to law school and even where they lived in terms of their proximity to New York or Washington, DC. I mean, most of our justices went to Yale or Harvard they grew up in New York or D.C. They have a similar religious background. You know, Earlier, I threw out the name Michelle Obama in response to your question of, you know, who would be on our shortlist? And and I, I said it with a bit of a laugh, but I also I meant that very seriously. She's an extremely well-qualified lawyer, but she has the elite training and had a very successful and important legal career, which she then set aside to take on the role of being First Lady, although I would argue that that would also be wonderful background experience for a Supreme Court justice to have. And in fact, I think that was part of Sandra Day O'Connor's appeal when she became a justice. She had served as a judge, but just for a brief amount of time, she had been in elected office prior to that. And so having a justice who has served in elected office, who's had to go out and meet all of their constituents statewide or nationwide offers a range of experiences and understanding about the lives that they are literally presiding over when they decide these cases that is very different from a justice who grew up outside of a major metropolitan area or in a major metropolitan area went to a very elite school and then went on perhaps to only practice corporate law representing corporations. And so I I do think that in addition to, obviously, we want to see more diversity with respect to women on the bench, I would like to see more diversity with respect to life experience on our Supreme Court and throughout the federal judiciary. We should have a judiciary that reflects the public it serves.
0: So when I interview authors of nonfiction works, it's usually one author. And in academia, it's much more common to have two or three professors collaborate on a book-length project. Could you just address the practical concerns of two different people working toward one goal on this?
1: So we have a longstanding collaborative relationship and friendship that I think has really facilitated the writing of the book this whole endeavor of studying the Supreme Court started back a decade ago when we were new colleagues at Michigan State University College of Law. And we were just talking in the hallway about the media coverage about now Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. We both had a shared interest in the court, obviously, as women and female academics and lawyers, we were concerned with the way that these extraordinary women were being portrayed. And that really, I think, was a starting place for building both a friendship and a collaborative writing relationship. So we've been at this together in our collaborative writing space for a decade. I would describe our writing process as as rather seamless. It's one of the places that I'm actually so comfortable as a professor. We, of course, have our own separate research interests that we've developed over the course of the last decade. You know, we no longer live in the same state or work at the same university, but we've raised our children together, we've attended conferences together. And so the process I think is has been incredibly it's been very rewarding and rather seamless.
2: And I would add to that, it's so great when you've been struggling through a section of writing to just be able to go to bed, push it off, and (laughs) magically, like, 24 hours later, have what you were trying to do and trying so hard to say appear on the page. And that's something that happened over and over again in writing with Hannah. In fact, I sure would like to send you the draft of the article I'm writing now on the, the federal judiciary and the Me Too movement, because it, it can use your magic. But maybe even in how listening to this conversation might wonder who's speaking now, is it Renee or Hannah? I think that's probably true about our writing. And in fact, when we go back to look at it months or years later we often struggle to recall who wrote that originally and definitely you know who who made edits to it and who, who revised it so i think we've been really fortunate i know one thing's for sure this book would have never been finished if i didn't have the feeling that i was always letting hannah down unless i got the next part <laughs> done and so that also helped
1: bring the project along
2: to know that there was someone else in it with me and also
1: to be accountable to I will say that I can recall with, I mean, almost as if it was yesterday, though, the f- one of the first times that I had to send a very early draft of my writing to Renee to review, because typically we don't share our writing publicly as, as as authors, as writers, until it's it's quite polished. But when you are engaged in a collaboration, it really required a certain vulnerability. But I would say from there, we really developed a lot of trust and a really beautiful writing process that... You know, despite other collaborations that I've had, it's never been quite the same as it, as it was with Renee.
0: Has another topic of scholarship brought you all together on another project yet?
1: Well, a related topic of scholarship.
2: At the, I don't know if this was a good idea or a bad idea, but as we were finishing <laughs> up the edits on this, we decided to author a casebook together. It was based on a, a seminar that Hannah had taught for many years and I started teaching in recent years. And the seminar is the same name as, as the, the casebook gender, power, law, and leadership. And that book really takes this conversation that we've had right now and addresses it from a scholarly perspective, looking even broader than just the legal profession, but to other professions, and importantly, helping the readers of it, our students, think very deeply about the reforms to address the enduring inequality we've been talking about.
0: And do you think shortlisted as a book that can be read by a general audience or do you think it's more appropriate for scholars?
2: It's for everybody. <laughs> I mean my my daughter is well she read it as soon as she got her hands on it. It's filled with all kinds of juicy information and anecdotes and historical tidbits about these women's lives and the events they lived through. Um, I think it's a book for women pursuing professional life, whether in the law or beyond. And it's definitely a book for anyone who cares about expanding opportunities for women and minority women in professional life.
1: It certainly will have a special appeal to people with an interest in history or in the law. But I agree. There is, I think, something for just about everybody in the book.
0: Well, I want to thank you all so much for taking an hour plus out to, to talk with us today on Book Talk.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Take care. Thank you.
0: Hannah Brenner-Johnson and Renee Kanaki-Jefferson are the authors of Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, which is published by NYU Press. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of BookTalk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.